0: Well, over a month ago now, we began a study of God the Spirit, a series of expositional sermons on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to continue that study today. But because so many weeks have gone by, I think it will be good for us to do a little bit of review here to get us back on track. Now, we began by establishing that the Bible reveals the personhood of of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He is not a force. He is not impersonal power. He is a person and he is God. He is not part God. He's fully God, which of course led us to explore the Bible's teaching on the Trinity. The Lord our God is one yet consists of three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, and even if we cannot fully understand it, God has revealed enough for us to grasp so that we can worship Him appropriately. Also remember that we are approaching this study according to how we can see the Holy Spirit's work and role and activity progress through the Scriptures. We are following the Bible's plot line as it develops because the Bible progressively tells us more and more about the Holy Spirit and his work and role in our lives and in the world. And his activity becomes more and more prominent as the Bible's story unfolds. That is to say, the Holy Spirit's work becomes greater and it becomes clearer As that story progresses, because this plot line then in the Bible is centered around the person of Jesus Christ, we are identifying the Holy Spirit's role before Christ was born, during Christ's life, and then after Christ has returned to glory in his ascension. And last time we focused on this period of time before Christ's birth. The Holy Spirit was at work throughout the Old Testament, even from the very beginning of time as he was active in, first of all, creation. The Holy Spirit was active in creation. And we looked at Genesis chapter 1. We looked at a number of Psalms and even some verses from the book of Job that showed us that the Holy Spirit took part in the creating of the world. He had a role in its creation. We also saw that the Holy Spirit was active in empowerment. The Holy Spirit enabled people to accomplish tasks and feats, whether they were feats of might or whether they were feats of wisdom, but the Holy Spirit would enable people to accomplish these things supernaturally. And we saw that the Bible used words, language like the Holy Spirit filled him. He was filled with the Spirit or he came upon him. The Holy Spirit came upon somebody. And that's how the Old Testament described this work of empowerment. We also saw that the Holy Spirit was the agent of revelation, divine revelation, prophecy, both spoken and written, written as scripture were the product of the Holy Spirit's activity working through the prophets. It was the Spirit's work to reveal the mind and the will of God. And lastly, we saw that the Holy Spirit was an object of promise. The Holy Spirit was an object of promise. While He was active throughout this era, throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward. They promised that the Spirit would someday have a greater role, that He would someday do greater work. The Old Testament prophecies point forward to a time when the Holy Spirit will, first of all, be present in God's Savior King, God's Messiah. The Messiah that God was promising would be marked by the presence and the power of God, the Spirit. Secondly, the Old Testament prophecies predicted that the Holy Spirit would be present in and among God's people in a new and better way, in a way that was not happening at the time that the prophecies were being made in the Old Testament. It is this last truth then that the Old Testament prophesied, it promised a greater, and more extensive work of the Holy Spirit, that truth becomes the direction for our next steps in understanding the Holy Spirit's work and role as it progressively unfolds through the Bible. And so in the weeks to come, we will talk about the Spirit's arrival and the Spirit's relationship to us as believers, as God's children, the coming of the Holy Spirit and his role before after Christ has returned to the Father. Today, we want to focus on the Spirit and the Son, the Spirit and the Son, the Holy Spirit's role during Jesus's life. Now, let me just say, I know that this is going to be a lot of information, a lot of data, and we will be looking at a number of references in the Bible. Anytime we study a topic or a subject like this, we will cover a number of of references throughout the scripture fortunately we have slides to to help keep us on track here but i want you to know that we have to mend nets before we can fish so if you're tempted to think well this is a lot of just information a lot of bible verses you're throwing out of sean just know that that we will get to the more practical aspects of what it means to live out the life that we have in the Holy Spirit as we progress. But at the moment, first of all, we have to weave the nets. You can't catch fish if there are big holes in your nets. So we are mending nets. We are weaving nets that are strong and effective so that we can can gather the truth and and apply it better later, okay? So we wanna talk about the Spirit and the Son. Let's pray for this morning. And Lord, as we come to these scriptures, give us, understanding, help us to grasp what you have revealed, especially in this relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We trust you and we know that you will, that you are with us and that you will help us to understand these things and to see how they they touch on our worship of you and our our knowledge of you. In your name we ask this. Amen. In prophetic words like Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 and Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, God promised a Savior King, a Messiah, to deliver his people. Isaiah chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, this, this one who would come from the, st- the stump of Jesse. Now, it's interesting, you might think, well, obviously, that's David. But Isaiah is saying this after David. David's already died at this point in history. And so he is pointing forward after David to someone who will come from David's line. This is going to be the Messiah. And he will exhibit the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in a way that no one else ever had before. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now this is this is the Messiah himself speaking as Isaiah is recording what the man would say. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. These were the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. And when the Old Testament comes to a close, God's people are in anticipation. They are waiting for this Messiah. The Gospels in the New Testament are written to show us that Jesus is that promised Savior King. He is that promised Messiah that everyone was waiting for. And the Gospels reveal this unique relationship between the Messiah and the Spirit of God, how the presence and power of God's Spirit uniquely marked him. So we see the Holy Spirit's role highlighted then in key moments in Jesus's life. These are key moments that reveal the identity of Jesus as this Christ, as the Messiah, beginning with his birth. So the Holy Spirit is present at Jesus's birth. The Holy Spirit prepares the way for Messiah's birth, first of all, through John the Baptist. So really his activity, his ministry, really comes to the front even before Jesus is conceived, even before Jesus is born, in the life of John the Baptist, who was the Messiah's forerunner, his herald. Let's look at Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He is going to be the father of John the Baptist, John, who will be Jesus's herald. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is proven very soon after when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Now, Mary has been visited by the angel and told that she is going to bear the Messiah and that her cousin Elizabeth is currently pregnant also. And this is a miraculous conception for Elizabeth also because she and Zechariah were beyond age to bear children. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 41 And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that is John, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so here we see what we have identified already in the Old Testament, the activity of the Holy Spirit. He fills Elizabeth and empowers her to reveal divinely this knowledge about Mary and the baby that she bears. The Holy Spirit himself then speaks prophetically through Zechariah also in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, now this is John's father, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel for he visited and redeemed his people. Okay, so these are examples of the Holy Spirit's activity continuing in this, what we would think of as the Old Testament mode. As the Holy Spirit prepares the way for the Messiah's birth. We see this revelation, just like through the prophets. And we see this empowerment, just like coming upon David. Now the Holy Spirit comes upon John, even within elizabeth's womb and he leaps for joy what the holy spirit does next though has no parallel it is an angel once again who reveals to mary and then to joseph how the messiah is conceived luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 31 and behold you will conceive in your womb The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here is the angel telling Mary, yes, you've never slept with a man. You're not married. You've never slept with a man. And yet you will conceive the Holy Spirit himself will conceive a child within you. Matthew chapter 1, we find that the angel also visits Joseph. And we can understand Joseph's situation. You'll see here, Joseph is betrothed. He's engaged to marry Mary, and he finds out that she is pregnant indeed. What is he supposed to do? He's a righteous man. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we get an explanation. Finally, Jesus's identity then is confirmed through another prophetic word provided by the Spirit. So Mary has heard through the angel, Joseph has heard through the angel, and they both have been told it is the Holy Spirit himself who has conceived this child. This confirmation then comes seven days after Jesus's birth. It was customary for the father and mother to take their firstborn son to the temple, to have him dedicated to the Lord. Mary and Joseph do this thing. And when they take him into the temple, they run into a man named Simeon. Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. So here is Simeon waiting for the Messiah, having been revealed to him directly from the Holy Spirit that he would see the Savior King before he died. And so now Simeon, in a prophetic word of confirmation, affirms that this indeed is the long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus' birth is surrounded by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through prophetic words by empowering John, even before John is born. And most importantly, miraculously, it is the Holy Spirit who has directly conceived the Messiah in Mary. So the Holy Spirit is already at work in this promised Messiah's life in his birth. The Holy Spirit is also present at Jesus's baptism. We don't actually have a lot of information about jesus's life between his birth and his public entrance into ministry which is here at his baptism the only vignette we have is found in luke chapter 2 when jesus is 12 years old and goes to jerusalem with his parents to celebrate the passover and ends up in the temple and uh, getting left behind and then mary and joseph have to turn around and come back and get him okay and he's in his father's house and he's doing his work but that's the only record we have of anything of Jesus's life before this event so Jesus's baptism is the inauguration of his ministry the launch of his mission at his baptism Jesus is authenticated and he is authorized to proclaim the kingdom and to exert the kingdom Matthew describes this key event in Matthew chapter 3 Verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Luke records almost the exact same account in Luke chapter 3. Listen, this is crucial. The Father's voice identifies Jesus as his Son with whom he is pleased. That is, Jesus has his approval and he is the Father's anointed representative. This is God the Father's commendation of God the Son. The visible descending of the Spirit of God to rest on Jesus, demonstrates, it visibly shows that God's Spirit is upon him in a special way, and that this indeed is the one whom all of the prophecies and promises have pointed to. The second person of the Trinity, as incarnate, Now being found in the form of a man is number one, submissive to God, the father, not acting on his own, but in unison with the father's will. And number two is dependent on the presence and the power of God, the spirit to execute his mission in the world. And we see this in the very next event in Jesus's life. Which you would think, now that his ministry is launched, you would think it would be a miracle. You would think that it would be a proclamation, but it's not. It is a trial. It is a trial. The Holy Spirit, though, is present at Jesus' temptation. At Jesus' temptation. Immediately following his baptism, Jesus undergoes an ordeal a test to prove his allegiance to the Father. He will resist Satan where Adam did not, and Jesus will win where Adam failed. I want to read from both Matthew and Luke's records of how Jesus ends up in this confrontation with Satan. Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is the goal. That is the purpose for which the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness. Luke records this in his gospel. He puts it this way in Luke chapter 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. This sounds a lot like the Old Testament, doesn't it? The Spirit has filled him. And Jesus is moving according to the will and the direction of the Spirit. There in the wilderness, Jesus asks for 40 days, and then he faces three grueling temptations, and he triumphs. He wins, and it is the Holy Spirit who has filled him. It is the Holy Spirit who has led him there. And I would understand the implication of those texts in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 to be telling us that it is the Holy Spirit who, because he has filled Jesus and led Jesus there, also sustains him throughout this ordeal, sustains him through this trial. It is only after this test in which Jesus maintains his allegiance, his loyalty to the Father's will, and a dependence upon the Spirit's leading and power that he is qualified now for ministry. So, in his baptism, he has been approved and authenticated. In this temptation, Jesus has now shown himself to be qualified to be the Messiah. And it establishes the ongoing dynamic for all of his earthly ministry. Submission to God the Father and dependence on God the Spirit. And this is exactly what we discover in Jesus's ministry. The Holy Spirit is present in Jesus's ministry. Now listen to what Luke tells us immediately takes place following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That is, he returned out of the wilderness where he had endured and triumphed in this temptation. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now being glorified here means being celebrated. The people were hyped up about what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying. And the very next verses then Luke continues to link Jesus's ministry with the presence and the power of the promised spirit of God. Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, which was his hometown in your hearing what are you kidding me they have been waiting for a messiah and here is jesus in his hometown walking into the synagogue and now having been baptized authenticated having undergone a qualifying trial of temptation and remained faithful jesus walks into a synagogue and where does he turn in the scriptures, to identify himself and boldly claim that he is the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies and promises of the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and following. One of the very texts we have looked at already. So the Holy Spirit authenticates. He authorizes the Son at his baptism. And now in this moment of self-revelation, the Son sets forth his claim by pointing to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work through him as proof that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises of a Savior King. Jesus is that Savior King. Jesus's ministry of healing and teaching then continued to display the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it is the work and the role of the Spirit in Jesus's life and ministry that becomes a point of controversy with the Jewish religious leaders. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus by tricking him into violating the Sabbath, which results in Jesus' healing a man's withered hand. Jesus restores this man's withered and deformed hand. In response, Matthew chapter 12, verse 14 tells us, that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. And let's pause. The, the, the Pharisees have already found Jesus to be a rival. They are already jealous of him. They are already trying to trap him and figure out a way that they can discredit him and his minister because he is so wildly popular. And so they try to trick him up and show him to be someone who is antagonistic toward the law of God. They'll, they're trying to discredit him, and so they bring up the Sabbath. Is it lawful for a man to heal someone on the Sabbath? And Jesus, Jesus confronts them, straightens out their theology if they would allow it, and then he heals the man. And so now having been taken to task, having been actually trapped by Jesus' words in turn, they are now conspiring to destroy Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. What he was doing was Jesus was in a very pragmatic way avoiding the timing of them arresting him and and putting him to death ahead of time. So he's trying to dampen, if you will, kind of call down his popularity by not continuing to spread the word about his healing of people. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It is because the spirit is upon Jesus in this unique way that Jesus is healing and teaching with authority. Matthew is linking these events together. And in the very next scene, beginning in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we see that this argument over where Jesus' authority and his power, how he is accomplishing these things, comes to a head, comes to a a culmination. Verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they are accusing Jesus of actually using satanic power and origin to cast out satanic minions out of people. Verse 25, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Jesus says, that's impossible. That's impossible. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So there were other others who were casting out demons at the time and we do have some historical record of that and Jesus is saying, if I'm doing it by the power of Satan, then they must be doing it by the power of Satan. And if that's the case, then Satan's kingdom is going to fall and you don't have any claims for having God's power on your side. But, verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. This is a little parable in which Jesus is saying, if I'm going to do the work of God and undo Satan's work, I have to bind him first and I have to exert power in casting out his minions. That's the only way it can be done. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters this is a proverb simply saying there's no neutral ground you either believe in jesus and you follow him or you reject him verse 31 therefore i tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. All right, now let's talk about this for a minute. These are grave words, aren't they, from Jesus? This talking about a sin that can't be forgiven? It may be that some of you have been frightened by these words, concerned, worried that you may have even committed the unforgivable sin. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And can we commit this unforgivable sin? Well, the best answer, and there are a lot of different answers. There is some disagreement about this sin and what it is, though there is mostly in, in Christian scholarship, there's mostly agreement with some little differences. But I think it's the context is best in helping answer that question and here is what this the the unforgivable sin is based on what jesus is saying to the pharisees and what they are doing the unforgivable sin that jesus talks about here is the willful aware rejection of christ by accusing the obvious work of the holy spirit as satanic it is this Willful blindness and this twisting of, the, of what is revealed, obviously, to be the work of the Holy Spirit against the kingdom of darkness, against the kingdom of, of Satan, and twisting it into being satanic origin and satanic power. It is a degraded form of unbelief, a degraded form of unbelief. So can this sin be committed? Yes, I believe the sin can be committed, but never by a Christian. Because a Christian has believed. A Christian is a believer. So listen, this is not a a sin that you can commit by accident. This is not a sin that we can just kind of stumble into because we get discouraged or despair or doubt God. Or, or succumb to some temptation. This is a, a willful, degraded form of unbelief. A hardening of the heart. So a Christian cannot commit this sin. So if you've ever been, if you're a believer and you're worried about committing this sin, you can't have committed it because no one who commits this sin has any concern whatsoever about God's judgment. They don't believe in it, and they don't care about it. Okay, so that is the warning that Jesus gives. But back to our our point here, this is the work of the Spirit. It is so evident that it becomes the point at which the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies, have to attack his ministry, the origin or the source of his power and his allegiance. It is the Spirit's presence and work in Jesus' life that demonstrates that he is God's Messiah. All right. Well, lastly, we see the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus's resurrection. We see the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus's resurrection. Now, maybe you're thinking, now, wait a second. Aren't there there other key moments in Jesus's life and, and ministry that reveal his identity? There are. There are a number of them. One of them is Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? to his disciples, and all the people are rumoring he's he's Elijah returned, he's John the Baptist who had been killed, and he's returned, and and so on. They're talking about all of these, and he asks his disciples, Well, this is what the people are saying, Who do you say that I am? And of course, Simon Peter is the one spokesman for the disciples. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Simon, You do not know this by flesh and blood, but it is my Father who has revealed this to you. But the Spirit is not mentioned there as revealing who Jesus is. What about his transfiguration? That's another defining moment in which Jesus' identity is revealed. And interestingly enough, there's nothing said about the Holy Spirit there. Um, Another one is the crucifixion when Jesus dies as a substitution sacrifice for sin. So at the transfiguration, some believe that the cloud, this cloud of glory is the Spirit's presence, much like the dove visibly came and rested on Jesus at his baptism. After all, in both events, his baptism and the transfiguration, we have the Father's voice speaking from heaven, declaring his approval of the Son, So there must be a parallel between Spirit. The problem is the text, and by the way, all four Gospels record the transfiguration. None of them say anything specific about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit's presence in that event. At Jesus' crucifixion, it may be that the Spirit's absence reflects the fact that the Son of God had to endure the abandonment of the Father. We know that Jesus cries out in despair on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It may just simply be that with the Father's forsaking of the Son, as he becomes sin on the cross, our sin, that the Spirit is also absent. In any case, the Gospels don't mention him in these moments in Jesus' life and mission When it comes to the resurrection, the gospel themselves do not actually mention the Holy Spirit's presence or activity. If you read, and again, all four gospels record Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned. But we do find a connection made in a couple of places, though we have to admit, be honest, they're a little obscure, and both are found in the book of Romans. Both are found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, concerning his Son, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the grammar here could be right. The, uh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. So the proclamation could be according to the Spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, it's his resurrection that qualified or brought about the Spirit's empowerment of the preaching of the gospel. It could be, though, that the Spirit of holiness, Paul, is linking to Jesus' resurrection. It's just a little unclear, but... It connects the two. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, I think we have a much clearer connection made between Jesus' resurrection and the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you now it is the spirit of him so it is god the father who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised christ jesus from the dead is the father raising christ jesus from the dead who will give life to your mortal bodies but he's Paul makes the point that the life he will give to our mortal bodies, meaning our resurrection from the dead, will be through a spirit who dwells in us. And that that mirrors or parallels, mirrors is probably a better word, mirrors Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What God the Spirit accomplished and did in raising Jesus from the dead. So we see from beginning to end of Jesus' ministry that the Holy Spirit is especially involved and upon Jesus, who is the Messiah. And it is the Spirit then, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 11, who will give us life as he gave Jesus life. What about until that day? What about until that day when the Spirit of life, God the Spirit, brings us back from the dead and gives life to our mortal bodies? How is the Holy Spirit present? How is he active in our lives today? We will start with that next time. Father, we thank you for this rich study, for illuminating our minds to the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we give you glory this morning for what you have done and how you have glorified the Son. And how there is this deep and unfathomable relationship and interaction, cooperation within the Holy Godhead. Under which we stand in awe. Lord, we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for that. And that you have brought us together as your people by the work of the Spirit through your Son. And so we give you glory today as we continue to worship and then continue to love you and and be a light in the darkness. Amen.